0: Well, I hope you had a great Christmas. We certainly did in the Cooper house. And in the Cooper house, we have to hide our children's gifts from them. And I'm not just talking about before they're wrapped, I'm talking about after they're wrapped. We have to keep them hidden because if we didn't, our children would unwrap the gifts in like November. I don't know about your kids, but that's how my kids work. They would have unwrapped them. And so Christmas Eve rolls around And Amy and I grab all these gifts and pull them up out of the basement and they're already wrapped and we put them under the tree and you could see kind of this wave of anticipation wash over our children's souls. Did you feel that anticipation as Christmas approached or see it in the faces of your kids? That's kind of what happened on Christmas Eve for us. And then we allowed our kids to open one gift at a time from grandparents, from uncles and aunties, from friends and neighbors and whatever. And one by one, our children unwrapped each one of these gifts. And as they saw what was inside the wrapping paper, you could see a look of exhilaration and joy and surprise. I mean, Kaya's kind of standard response is this high-pitched scream and all the dogs in the neighborhood came running, right? Right. And Canaan's kind of standard response is, "Dada, look, Mama, look. And you can just see this look of joy and and just happiness and blessedness and laughter beyond really my ability to explain to you. That's the book of Romans. It's a gift. And, And that gift is kind of one big collective gift called the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for all who believe. This is the gift that is Romans. But inside that one big gift, there's a bunch of little individual gifts that we get to unwrap one by one. And that's the implications of the gospel. The freedom that the gospel brings, the joy that the gospel brings, the community that the good news brings. This is a book that, that is, it's just inexplicable. It's, it's beyond words. It's, it's the gospel unwrapped. Each and every implication, each and every nuance, each and every question that you might have is addressed in the book of Romans. By the time Paul wrote this book, he was in his early 50s. He had converted from a a life of Jewish kind of law and devotion to uh, Jewish rules and regulations. We'll talk about that in a minute. And for 25 years, he journeyed all around the Mediterranean world, preaching in synagogues, preaching to Jews, preaching to non-Jews, preaching in uh, the temple courts and preaching in uh, outdoor areas and preaching all over the place. Anyone who would listen to the gospel. And as he preached over 25 years, he would have heard, you know, arguments or reasons that the gospel wasn't true or right or real. So by the time he wrote Romans, he had 25 years of those objections filed away in the back of his mind. He's in his early 50s and he writes this Christian manifesto to tell us not just what the gospel is, but why it matters. He unveils to us the glory and the joy and the freedom that we experience when we allow the gospel to saturate our souls. When we, to use our analogy, unwrap every little implication and not just unwrap it and see it, but then take it out of the box and use it. It will bring us joy explicable. This is why I've chosen the book of Romans for our church in this season, because I want you to see and know and experience and be changed by God's radical, transformative grace. His free grace, His unmerited grace, His grace that you don't have to work for, His grace you don't have to jump through hoops for. I want you to know it in your heart and in your homes and your family and in your work and your play. I want you to be set free by the gospel. And in Romans, Paul is about to unwrap for us this gift, grace. We're going to teach through the book of Romans at a Snail's pace in 2021. And for some of you, that might be a little bit terrifying because a couple of years ago, it took me like three years to get through the Gospel of John. How long is it going to take us to get through Romans? If we move at a snail's pace, it's going to take us a while. But like a stew that kind of simmers over time, the more Romans simmers in your soul and in your heart, the more difference it's going to make. The more you understand the history and the culture, the more you understand what's happening in the first century church. And the more we understand each and every word of this book and there's not one wasted word. The more you understand it, the more it will change you. So without further delay or introduction, Let's get into our study in the book of Romans. If you have your Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Romans is probably 80% of the way through your Bible. It's the sixth book in the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have your Bible or a device that you can read along with us, the scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. I've got the scripture memorized for us today. Um, it wasn't hard to memorize. You'll see why here in a minute. But here it is, a reading from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Paul. Yeah, that's it. That's as far as we're going to (laughs) get. I said snail's pace, right? Paul. In order to understand the gospel and the good news that is the book of Romans, you must understand its author. Let me say that again. In order to understand the gospel, the good news that is the book of Romans, you must understand its author. This was a very specific man writing from a very specific background and time and place, a specific experience, a specific worldview. And all of those things kind of coalesce in the book of Romans. And in order to understand all of what he's saying there, we have to understand who he was and who he is so let's talk about the author of Romans the very first thing you need to know about the author of Romans is that he was Jewish he was Jewish and he writes from a Jewish perspective and I want you to know just how Jewish this author is He's just introduced himself as Paul. That would have been a typical beginning to a letter in the first century. Someone introduces themselves rather than saying, dear Sally or dear Joe. They they, uh, begin with an introduction of self. And he says, Paul. Uh, But Paul was born with two names. Paul being his Roman name because he was a Roman citizen. But Saul was his Jewish name. He was named after the very first king in Israel, a very Jewish name. He was born in about AD 6 in a city called Tarsus, and he was born into a Jewish family, and not just a Jewish family, but a Pharisee family. Saul's family, and Saul was the name he went by in his growing up years before he converted to Christianity. Saul was born into a Pharisee family. The Pharisees were the strictest adherents to the Jewish law back then. Every little I was dotted and every little T crossed. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his biography of the life of Paul, says this, it seems as if Paul had swallowed the Old Testament whole. This is how Jewish he was. Likely by the time he was about 10 years old, Saul would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Yes, yes. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's a pretty good chunk of scripture. Would have had it totally memorized. And and large portions of the law and the prophets that came after that, he would have had committed to memory. And he would have been devoted, devoted in all of his life to keeping that law and to mirroring in his life what he read in those Old Testament scriptures. He was extraordinarily Jewish and committed to his Jewish faith. So much so that in his teen years, he would leave his hometown of Tarsus and move to Jerusalem to study under a rabbi named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was the most prominent rabbi and respected rabbi of that time. You see, Saul was even willing to leave comfort and home and family to study under Gamaliel in order to become a Pharisee, which he did in about 30 AD. He became a Pharisee himself, a keeper of the Old Testament law. On top of being Jewish, I want you to know that Saul was also zealous. And if you're jotting down uh, notes, you can jot that down. Saul was zealous, but remember to spell it with a Z, not a J. He wasn't jealous, but he was zealous. What we mean by zealous is that in that time and place, there were kind of two schools of thought in response to the Gentile world and even in response to Jews who weren't strict adherents to the law. And those two schools of thought were kind of live and let live. If somebody isn't as strict with the law as you are, live and let live. That would have been Paul's mentor's perspective, a man named Gamaliel, like we said. But Saul, Saul was not a live and let live kind of guy. He was zealous. In fact, he says it of himself later in life, writing now as Paul, looking back on his early kind of Hebrew pedigree, Paul would write this of himself. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. And as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You see, he even uses of himself this word zeal. And now in our modern Western world, we think of zealous as being passionate or excited or fanatic about something. But in the first century Hebrew mindset, this word zeal carried with it the implication of violence or aggressive rebellion. Two quick examples from the Old Testament to help us understand this zeal that Saul felt for his faith. First is a man named Phineas when his Israelite brothers began to kind of intermarry and intermingle with Moabite women who were outside of the nation of Israel. Phineas took it upon himself to kill one of his Israelite brothers and a Moabite woman in order to purify the nation of Israel. So not only is he killing a non-Jew, but he's killing a Jewish brother because he wasn't keeping the law. And in Numbers chapter 25, the word zealous is used of Phineas three times and he's congratulated for his zeal. In first Kings chapter 19, Elijah is struggling with the very same thing. Fellow Jews who aren't keeping the law, listen to what he says to God. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Do you hear what he said about himself? He was zealous for the Lord God Almighty these folks, Saul and many of his contemporaries weren't just, interesting in, weren't just interested in pushing back against the Roman empire, but they were interested in purifying the nation of Israel from those who didn't keep the law. Yes, they had been freed from Egypt. Yes, they had been freed from Babylonian oppression, but now they're under Roman rule. And even though the temple is restored and even though they have a level of freedom, they are still oppressed under the Roman empire. So Saul and his contemporaries were zealous for the faith in that they believed in order to uh, be freed from Roman rule, that they would have to be completely pure as a nation. That meant that they were willing to expel or even get violent against those who did not adhere strictly to the law. So then it makes sense why Saul, when he heard of this crucified itinerant preacher from Galilee, who claimed to be the Messiah and that there was a group of folks in Jerusalem who claimed that he had rose from the dead and claimed that his resurrection vindicated his claims to be the Messiah. It makes total sense why Saul, as a zealous man, would come to Jerusalem looking to persecute those individuals would stand by in Acts chapter seven and hold the coats of those who threw rocks at Stephen until he died. And they threw rocks at Stephen until he died because he claimed Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. It makes total sense why Saul would request permission from the high priest to journey to Damascus and put Christians in prison or even go so far as to kill them because he was so incredibly zealous for his faith. Think of someone who has just gone completely completely radical for their faith. This was Saul in his Jewishness. He was Jewish and he was zealous. The third thing you need to know about the author of Romans is that he got transformed. He was transformed. I'll begin now to use his Roman name. That's Paul, because later in life, because of this radical transformation, he would say, this even requires a name change and started to call himself Paul. You see, on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus with uh, permission papers in hand, Paul would have this experience. As he journeyed, he saw a bright light. And from that bright light, he heard a voice. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul would respond, who are you, Lord? And from the light, Saul would hear this, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now, at this point, Christ had died, resurrected and ascended into heaven. So what Saul would claim he heard is this resurrected and ascended Jesus now appearing to him on the road to Damascus. So you may believe that, which I do, and you may not believe that. You may, oh, that was, that was a hallucination. That was something else. But no matter what you believe, what you cannot say is that nothing happened on that road to Damascus. Something happened. How do we know that? Because Saul left all of his zealousness and, and he left uh, persecuting Christians and he became one himself. He left all his doubts, he left all his cynicism, he left all his aggressive rebellion and now began to apply that to preaching the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world. After that experience of transformation on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus, Saul, now Paul, begins to tell everyone about this moment of transformation. He begins to tell everyone about Jesus. He begins to tell everyone about this good news that the long awaited Messiah, the rescuer, the redeemer of humanity has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul would tell anyone who would listen. He told Jews in synagogues. He told pagans in communal gathering areas. He told people at private gatherings and at public gatherings, the rich, the poor, adults, children. Jews, Gentiles, slaves, freedmen, anyone who would listen, he told, and he did it for 25 years. He had been transformed by the power of the gospel and wanted everyone to know about it. So for 25 years, Paul journeyed all over the Mediterranean world. He had kind of three primary missionary journeys, but he was essentially on the road for 25 years, all over the Mediterranean world. And it wasn't an easy time, right? He's not like in a, you know, one of those neat tour buses that Taylor Swift has now, right? I mean, this was difficult, tough slugging. Paul was beaten. He was whipped. He was uh, imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. He was uh, snake bitten even. I mean, that's real. He, he, he was, he was uh, flogged. I mean, he, he, he was betrayed by friends. He was homeless and hungry and alone a lot of times. I mean, for 25 years, he endured and persevered because he believed in the power of the gospel so much. So last thing you need to know about Paul, not just that he was Jewish or zealous, and after that he was transformed, but he was also experienced. Think of all the experience that he had in those 25 years. All the difficult days, all the tough days, all the isolated days. Think about all the ways that he would have heard objections to the gospel and learned how to respond to those over time. So by the time he writes this letter to the church at Rome, all of that experience goes into this letter. All of those objections, hypothetical or real, go into this letter. So by the time Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome, he's in his early 50s. He's been on the road as a missionary for 25 years. He's endured hardships and pain and suffering. He's persevered through some very, very difficult times. He expresses in his letter to the church at Rome that he would like to go to Jerusalem first and drop off some financial gifts that he had collected from Gentile churches in the Mediterranean, then on to Rome and be sent from there to Spain. He tells him he longs to visit them, although he never had, he had never been to the church at Rome and he longs to visit them. And he sends ahead of himself this letter that unpacks the gifts that are the gospel of Jesus. In just a couple of years, Paul would get his wish, probably not in the way he imagined it. He would be arrested and tried. He would appeal as a Roman citizen, and he would be uh, in chains, brought to Rome, and imprisoned there. History tells us that up to 45 miles outside of the city, the Christians in Rome would come out and meet Paul. And as he journeyed into the city of Rome in chains, these Christians turned it into a parade, welcoming the greatest missionary of the Christian faith as he came into the church at Rome for the very first time. He would spend the next number of years of his life mostly in prison and he was beheaded as a martyr in 64 AD. He left behind though, letters to the church, pastoral epistles and encouragement doctrinal errors that he was addressing and behavioral things. But Romans is special. Romans is unique. I've heard it said that if the New Testament is a diamond, Romans is the brightest part. If the New Testament is a crown then Romans is the crown jewel, it's a Christian manifesto. It's the greatest and best explanation of what it is to be free in Christ. It's arguments for the existence of God. It's arguments for the sin and corrupt nature of humanity. It's arguments that we've set up for ourselves idols and not just idols in the traditional sense that we expect, but we've set up for ourselves the idol of religion saying my religion is going to save me. And Paul unpacks all of that for us. He unwraps that gift and he gives it to us. It might not feel like a gift, but it is. And then he says, but listen, this is the gift of God that he sent his son Jesus into the world and the wages of that idolatry, what you've earned for yourself is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. He says things like there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing, not hardship, not famine, not sword, nothing. And he experienced all of those things. He tells us that we're free in Christ. He tells us that Jesus has paid the penalty for us. He tells us there's no ho- hoops we have to jump through in order to earn God's favor. And he says, now, therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. And he says, this is the implications of the gospel for community. This is the implication of the gospel for how you treat one another. This is why God has given you spiritual gifts. This is how you see yourself and the world around you. This is what it means to be a light into the world. This is all that the gospel means. And he unwraps each and every gift for us. And on our faces, we will see joy and laughter and blessing just like a child unwrapping gifts at Christmas. I was asked this week, What is it that you want our congregation to see or experience or feel or know? What's the action item as we preach through Romans? Here's the deal. There probably really isn't one. (laughs) And I know for some of you who want life application, you're going, well, this stinks. I'll turn off the stream right now. And that's fine. Here's what I want you to know. Romans can change you if you let it saturate your heart and your soul, if you don't just read it, but you swallow it whole, like young Saul would have done the Old Testament, if you let it penetrate and permeate your soul, it will change you. And I know that not just because I've read Romans and I believe that about the whole Bible. I know that because Romans has a track record of changing people. In the summer of 386, a man named Aurelius, he was a professor of rhetoric at a university in Milan, heard a child singing a little song, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. And He thought, well, that's weird. So he picked something up, started to read it. Now Aurelius wasn't necessarily a man of faith. He was kind of a licentious guy, had a child out of wedlock. He was a partier, but he picked up a book and began to read. And here's what he read not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That book, of course, is Romans. And that man is Aurelius Augustinius, St. Augustine, who later would write this of that experience reading Romans. No further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence, A clear light flooded my heart and the darkness of doubt vanished away. That was his moment of complete conversion. 1,200 years later, an Augustinian monk and a professor of biblical theology named Martin Luther had his own internal struggle. He was struggling with Psalm uh, chapter 31, verse one, that says, in thy righteousness deliver me. And Martin Luther thought, how can that be? God's righteousness is the place his wrath flows from and his justice. I am unrighteous. God is righteous. That sets us apart from one another. How is it that God's righteousness would deliver me? And he had, if you know Luther, a deep internal, uh, just nagging and, and, and almost parasitic conflict within himself about this righteousness and deliverance. And he tried to the best of his ability to impress God, to do everything God wanted him to do so that he could experience God's redemption until he read this. The righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. That quote, of course, is from the book of Romans. Later on, Luther would write, night and day, I pondered, until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through sheer grace and mercy, He justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through the open doors into paradise. May 24th, 1738, a man named John Wesley went reluctantly to a prayer meeting. He was dragged there by a friend. During that prayer meeting, he heard Martin Luther's commentary read aloud, just his preface to the book of Romans. And afterward, John Wesley would write this about the experience. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away even mine and save me from the law of sin and death. And it was that conversion of John Wesley that started the first great awakening that that spread throughout the entire world, a revival beginning with just Luther's comments in the preface to the book of Romans. For centuries, some of the most important leaders of the Christian faith have pointed to the book of Romans and the doctrine it contains as a turning point in their walk. From Augustine to Luther, from Calvin to Wesley, all the way to the Apostle Peter. Romans has been the catalyst for radical change. Yes, I said the Apostle Peter himself. You see, initially, Peter engaged the Gentiles with the gospel, non-Jews with the gospel, But after a while, Peter grew afraid of those who might attack him for that. And he began to draw back. And Paul was like, ah, he met Peter in Antioch and confronted him with indignance, actually. And and he confronted him publicly and said, Peter, what are you doing with this gospel? You're preaching to people that they have to kind of do additional things in order to impress God. In fact, this is what Paul himself would write of that encounter with Peter. He said this. He said, Peter, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because the works of the law, no one will be justified. That that, uh, account of that encounter with Peter comes from Paul's book of Galatians. And many scholars and commentators would say that Romans is Galatians unpacked. So it's that very doctrine that he shares with Peter and Peter was convinced and Peter became the foundation, the rock on which God's church has been built. So much so that later in life, even after being publicly confronted by Paul, Peter would write this, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Romans can change you. So welcome to 2021, do you need some change? Do you need some transformation? Does your faith need new life? Does your walk with Jesus need new vitality? Has it grown stale or stagnant or boring? Or maybe you just need some encouragement, a reminder of God's extraordinary grace, or maybe you're brand new to this Christian thing and you just wanna know what it's all about. Just as Romans was for the fathers of our faith, it's for you too. So whether you're a seeker or a skeptic or a cynic, a missionary, a monk, or a mom, a pastor, a priest, a pauper, or a king, Romans is for you because Romans is the gospel and the gospel is for you. Come with us this year as we journey through the book of Romans and we unpack and unwrap every little gift that it has to offer. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for coming into the world 2000 years ago. Thank you that after you died and rose again and ascended into heaven, you didn't just leave us alone, but you sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit inspired these early uh, apostles and followers to write some stuff down. And so now, 1,963 years later, we can read the very words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. God, we with Paul affirm that we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is is the power of God for all who believe. God, as we journey through Romans this year Would you teach us, exhort us, encourage us, transform us, remind us that the good news about Jesus is the very power of God. We pray that we would experience that power in the book of Romans. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen.